This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to have Heather McGee. She's an expert on economic and social policy, former president of the think tank Demos, and currently chair of the board of Color of Change. When you really look at the economic data and match it up to the public opinion polling, you can see that there is a a there was a newfound conservatism, a retreat from the public, a retreat from government and support for labor unions by white Americans that really accelerated in the period after the civil rights movement. Heather McGee is also the author of the new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Welcome, Heather. Hey, it's great to be with you, David. It's great to have you. I loved your book. I loved your the perspective that you bring on the issue of racism, and you've really put your finger on an issue that's been eating at me these last few years, uh, and that is why poor and uh, middle-class white voters repeatedly vote against their own self-interest. And your book really explains it in one word, racism. <laughs> right? That's, that's, yes, yes. Although, um, you know, I can't, I don't know, 488 pages later, I, I offer a little nuance to that, but, but it's, it's definitely the, the idea, this zero sum racism, this idea that it's not racism as we often think of it, like I won't sit on a bus next to you, right? It's, it's, it's this idea of racial competition. It's, it's, it's a lot of, um, degrading stereotypes and disdain and and distrust of black people and other people of color and immigrants but that in politics ends up creating this sense of attachment to to relative status and to group competition it's the idea that progress for people of color has to come at white folks expense and that any vehicles for collective action that would bring white people into kind of shoulder to shoulder with their fellow Americans of color um, is something that should be distrusted, uh, whether it's government, public service, social benefits and programs, or it's often labor unions as well. And, you know, your, your, your theory here um, that you give, uh, you know, ample details, and we can talk about some of the examples, is that, you know, racist uh, uh, ideas and, and policies uh, are hurting uh, everyone, white people yeah. and black people. Um, and, and in some ways, uh, obviously, um, against the interests of, of many uh, white people as well. Um, you go into, you give a little historical perspective when you talk about uh, a gentleman by the name of Hinton Rowan Helper, who in 1857 was an avowed racist, but also uh, wrote a book called The Impending Crisis of the South, in which he argues that slavery um, had so deformed the Southern economy um, and impoverished the region that it was not harmful just to Blacks, but to whites and to the entire region. And so talk a little bit about how this person's thoughts from you know the 1850s, an, an avowed uh, racist, uh, kind of informed what you were writing about today? Well, the thing that connects today's economy with the economy that Hinton Rowan Helper was was railing against was really about the concentration of wealth and power. For him, the plantation class, which was a, a narrow 
uh, part of, of the Southern white population, but held all the wealth and all the land and all the power, um, was making all of the decisions in order to feed the, the plantation economy. And the plantation economy didn't need much else from the rest of the white population, right? It didn't need white people as workers, didn't need an educated white workforce, didn't even need white people as customers, right? Because the, the cotton trade was global. The workforce that was milling the cotton was in the North. And so there was this sense of this, this indifferent and corrupt elite that was underinvesting in the public good uh, and in the commons, you know, very much in, in sort of um, contrast to some of the Northern elite that was advocating for a lot of social policies and libraries uh, and schools. Hinton, Rowan, Helper counted the number of schools and libraries in Southern states versus free states and found just a massive discrepancy, you know, all out of whack with proportion. And I connect that to today, to the period of time that we, we in the progressive economics field called the, the inequality era. Um, and it's had very similar features, right? Where we have this massive concentration of wealth and power. 1% of the population today owns more wealth than the entire middle class. We have a class of billionaires that have uh, seen their wealth increase during the pandemic by over 50%, right? So this, this disconnect between what happens to everyday Americans and what's happening to the wealthy and the powerful. And then the thing that really connects it is the underinvestment in public goods. The idea that because so much has been privatized, that the people who have so much power and control no longer need to invest or feel that they no longer need to invest in what we hold in common, our public schools, our public infrastructure. Um, in fact, you know, in response to President Biden's proposed American jobs plan that would be paid for by a modest increase in the corporate tax rate, uh, you know, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce said, uh, no, we don't we don't think this is the right way to, to pay for roads and bridges and ports. Uh, we think that only the users should pay. <laughs> and it's like, do you really think you don't use public goods and public infrastructure? Do you not depend on an educated workforce? Do you not depend on uh, our hard infrastructure as well as our soft infrastructure? So it's, it's that idea of the kind of self-interested uh, and uh, privatizing uh, powerful elite uh, that connects what Hinton Rowan Helper was talking about to uh, to today. And of course, the other massive thread there is the way that racial capitalism is part of what creates the logic for privatizing and for moving away from the public. And that's what that's a thread that I, I sort of pull throughout the book. Yeah, it is. Uh, you, you give a very graphic example that uh, I think uh, perhaps people can can really get their hands on in your chapter entitled Racism Drained the Pool. Uh, and that's something that you've talked quite a bit about because it's a very, it's a very simple and clear example about how um, white people would rather go without than to share equally. And talk a little bit about your experience with racism drain the pool. This is really the central metaphor of the book is, is the drained pool. And people have started to talk about drained pool politics as really defining the era in which we have been in for so long, the neoliberal era of austerity. But it goes back to 
um, really this turning point in American economic policy um, that really happened around the late 1960s, early 70s. We went from in the 1930s and 40s, having this New Deal philosophy, this government ethos that just said basically it's it's in the interest of the government and it's the duty of the powerful to increase the standard of living for our people. And so we had these massive public investments in economic security and mobility for tens of millions of, of, of people from the New Deal era protections, uh, the massive investments in housing, public schools, public parks, public amenities, it was sort of this building boom of the public through to the GI Bill of 1944, um, which of course put generation to, to college and home ownership. And virtually all that I just described was segregated either explicitly like in the mortgage market and housing subsidies or um, through disparate impact like the GI Bill, which was race neutral in its face, but excluded so many black veterans um, because of segregation in the housing market and, and in it in higher education. And these public pools were just this like little example of that kind of ethos of public goods and public investment. And we had nearly 2000 of them in the country. And these were grand resort style pools. They served a public health interest. Uh, you know, they were often associated with lower crime in the cities. They were this part of this Americanizing project. It seems kind of simple and, and sort of recreational. And yet they were often kind of the lifeblood of communities. And they were often for whites only and segregated as well. And in the late 1950s and early 60s, when the civil rights movement emboldened Black families to say, hey, those are our tax dollars funding this so-called public pool. We want our kids to swim too. Many towns across the country, I, I visited one in Montgomery, Alabama, called Oak Park, the, the park system there that once had a big pool, um, but it wasn't just in the sort of Jim Crow South, it was all over the country, opted to drain their public pools rather than integrate them. So in Oak Park in Montgomery, Alabama, they, they drained the, the water, they backed up truckloads full of dirt, uh, they closed down the entire park system, they sold off the animals in the zoo, they kept the Montgomery Parks and Recreation Department closed for a decade rather than let Black families have access to this public good. So what did that mean, right? It meant that white families also lost out on something that they had loved uh, and enjoyed for free. It meant that middle-class families then began to build backyard swimming pools. Uh, They're cropped up all across the country, these membership-only private swim clubs, which we still see today. What was once a public good then became a private amenity, a private luxury. And then we lost something, of course, you know, as a community in the whole. Um, and I use the public, the drained pool to explain how it was that the majority of white voters really turned their backs on the public investment, high tax, high investment, high protection uh, formula that had created the white middle class once the civil rights movement demanded that that be extended to all Americans who contributed to economic prosperity in this country, not just to white people. Um, And the cost of that has obviously been felt by by Black Americans, first and foremost, who never got to swim in the public pools, right? Um, But of course, it also has led to this politics that has redistributed wealth upwards and has moved us, for example, from free public college to a debt for diploma system, um, has moved us away from public investments into uh, a real privatization of the the basic things that people need um, and, a, and a massive underinvestment in our public infrastructure, which we are just now seeing 
the beginning of the sort of refilling of the drained pool um, with the Biden administration's, you know, two big bills, one, the American Rescue Plan, and then, of course, the proposed American Jobs Plan. Right. Let's talk about the politics a little bit. Uh, You mentioned that, you know, obviously you you have an economic background. You look at this from, you know, a rational perspective and and you say to yourself, you know, I don't know why, uh, you know, white people um, would be acting against their own self-interest, why they would be closing a pool that their children would be able to use and now they're not able to use, why they would be voting for candidates who would be taking away their health care or other benefits that they need or, or wage increases that lift, you know, lift everyone up. And so you said it, it really didn't make sense. And you wanted to, to look at, you know, why this was happening. And so why is it happening? <laughs> so I, I had spent nearly 20 years helping to build and then being the president of an, a think tank that tried to solve these these problems and answer these questions with with economic data and research and bring them to policymakers and have them make better economic decisions that would be good for everyone, right? Black, white, and brown. And, and yet it felt like there was this sort of iceberg that was blocking our progress. And we weren't, we were sort of discouraged from talking about race in this explicit way. We were always trying to find kind of other rationales for what was going on with white voters. And I say white voters, to be very clear here, um, in general, white voters have are about 20 to 30 percentage points less enthusiastic and supportive of progressive economic policies that would uh, you know, raise wages and provide more economic security. Um, for example, the Affordable Care Act, which is a pretty modest intervention in the healthcare market, right? It's a number of consumer protections, uh, some subsidies for working and middle-class people, and like a shopping portal, right? This is not a socialist takeover of medicine, right? And yet it has never crested over 50% popularity with white Americans, even though white Americans are the largest group of the uninsured. And um, and then, of course, you know, the, the big factor here is is what happened, you know, largely in politics after the civil rights movement. When Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights uh, Act and the Voting Rights Act, he then became the last Democrat running for president to ever win the majority of the white vote through to this day. And so there was this sort of massive shift in the ideology and the political preferences of white Americans that really did coincide with the civil rights movement, that really did turn kind of your typical white New Deal Democrat who loved big government, right? In 1956 and 1960, according to the uh, a real gold standard social survey called the ANES, the majority of white Americans, two thirds, thought that the government should guarantee a job to everyone who wanted one. And that figure fell from 1960 to 1964 from nearly 70% in half to just 35%. And, and when I saw that in the spreadsheet, I was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you don't get these kinds of you know, massive shifts in the course of you know, the next time they ask the question in this quadrennial survey. And yet I thought about, okay, so what happened between 60 and 64? 
March on Washington uh, for jobs and freedom in 1963 included a job guarantee as one of the core demands. It was Black people asking for that as well. Uh, And then 1963 was, of course, the year when President Kennedy went on a a media blitz around civil rights, firmly associating the Democratic Party with civil rights. And then, of course, we know his successor by actually following through on those promises, you know, would, would lose the white vote, you know, for the Democratic Party through to this day. And so... I'm not saying that the Democratic Party is perfect. And I think, in fact, a lot of the politics, the sort of triangulation that has happened, uh, you know, during my lifetime uh, has, in order to chase that more conservative white vote, has actually left the economic progressive white person um, who, you know, is not the sort of median white voter, um, you know, sort of without a political home. And, you know, I'm a big believer and supporter of uh, and a board member of the Working Families Party here in New York. I mean, I, I, I definitely think that there are problems with both parties. But when you really look at the economic data and match it up to the public opinion polling, you can see that there is a, a there was a newfound conservatism, a retreat from the public, a retreat from government and support for labor unions by white Americans that really accelerated in the period after the civil rights movement. And what that did was it gave political support to a party whose agenda was to redistribute wealth upwards. And and we now are living in the world that that has created where 1% of the population owns as much wealth as the entire middle class. Nearly half of adult workers before the pandemic were paid low wages, around $10 an hour. Um, so we're really kind of all living in the bottom of the drain pool, right, where, where our economy simply isn't delivering uh, for most people who work for it. And, and, and I really did not set out in my career to work on these issues of race and racial justice necessarily. I was a person who wanted to solve big economic problems, and yet it became really clear to me that this is this sort of hidden factor that helps explain why we can't seem to have nice things in America, universal health care, child care, paid family leave, well-funded, reliable infrastructure, the list goes on. Right. And it's because, you know, we've been fed this false narrative that big government means somebody else is going to get a benefit that's not you. Um, uh, when in reality, it's for everybody. And and if you vote against it, then nobody gets to swim. Uh, right. And so, you know, I, I, I heard you said you, you, when you were ta- thinking about a title for this book and the title is The Sum of Us is, you know, very nice and and, you know, lofty title. But you were thinking about uh, something along the lines of white people, you played yourself. Uh, right? <laughs> Uh. Yeah, that was, I mean, it was kind of a fun joke. It was, you know, we were, you know, had a little uh, list of of possible titles and um, there were some that were more, you know, the original working title was Linked Fate, uh, which, you know, was even more kind of lofty and conceptual. Uh, And then uh, my friend, 
who's also an author, said, you should call it to spite your face, right? Like, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. So for like a month, you know, my manuscript on my computer was called to spite your face, you know? And then I, I never quite made it a working title, but I did think it was sort of funny to think just, you played yourself, you know? <laughs> like, um, But actually my husband takes credit for the title, The Sum of Us, which is of course the play on the idea of the zero sum. And it also... Um, you know, invites us to think about what we are to one another as Americans. Um, and the book is very hopeful. I, I try to do, um, I think it it just reflects kind of my way of looking at the world, which is really grounded in, in the hard facts of, of our history and our current inequalities and, and thinks that it's, it's, everybody should have that history, right? We're not so old as a country. We shouldn't let you know, powerful organizing forces who want to rob us of our history succeed. Because when we know how we got to where we are, when we see the patterns of, of manipulation and corruption in our history, then we're, we're awake to them today, right? I mean, if you're a real student of history, uh, and it's not so hard to be, right? It's not like we need to memorize dynasties going back thousands of years. We're only a couple hundred years old. Um, but if you really know anything about our even most recent history, then you would recognize, for example, what Donald Trump was doing when he was calling the lie, the the big lie of, of, of election fraud and saying that the election was stolen. You would recognize that January 6th would, of course, have happened um, and that it would be animated by this, this real fear of a multiracial democracy and this uh, desire to illegitimate the voice of a multiracial population and just say that basically whoever won the white vote should win the presidency. Um, And that's really the sort of the underlying logic. It's the underlying logic of voter suppression. It's the underlying logic of what we're seeing in 250 laws across the country and in in Georgia. Um, And it's, and it's not new, right? This is exactly what was happening during reconstruction in the wake of the civil war. um, When, Things exactly like what happened on January 6th happened at the state level. There's a big story that I tell in the book about Colfax, Louisiana, where a white mob uh, burned a courthouse to the ground and slaughtered a hundred of their black neighbors who were defending the courthouse because they were certifying the election results for, uh, you know, a white man, but who won uh, with a multiracial uh, vote in Louisiana. And, and, And it's that very, very, very recent history um, that we have to know in order to ground us and also recognize that, you know, the world we are in today is because of decisions that we have made um, and a different set of decisions can make a better world. Well, I think the Some of Us is a good and appropriate title for your book. It's, <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's a very, we're talking about very, uh, I'm going to say, uh, you know, uh, harmful, uh, very, in many ways, frustrating topics Um, But the book is very rational. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it approaches these issues from a very, you know, factual way uh, and talks about, you know, how, why we, why we are where we are. And it also, and it is very hopeful, I'm going to say. And you talk a little bit about how things can can be better. I know you talk about uh, 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 a chapter in Lewiston, Maine, where Mm -hmm. immigrants uh, came in and actually helped turn around uh, what was formerly a dying mill town. Um, mm. And so so talk about what we can do and how we can be better going forward. 
because uh, your book is very uh, optimistic and hopeful. Yeah, through, throughout my journey, and, and the book really recounts a series of, you know, places I visited and conversations I had um, throughout my journey across the country to write The Sum of Us, I, I did come across people who were rejecting the zero-sum lie um, and who had recognized that the most important things in life are not things we can do on our own, despite the sort of myth of, of rugged individualism in the United States. I can't clean up the air in my neighborhood or fund my kids' school better by myself, right? Um, if I'm, you know, a worker on a shop floor, I can't raise the, you know, wages in my plant by myself, Um if I ask for a raise, I'm often shown the door, right? You know, it's about collective action. And so I began to, to call this phenomenon of people coming together across lines of, of race to unlock these gains that we can only win um, collectively is a solidarity dividend. And I saw these solidarity dividends really everywhere I turned. I saw them um, in Richmond, California, where a group of uh, a multiracial group of, of immigrants and, and African-Americans and um, and progressive white folks had come together to take on the big polluter in their community, Chevron, uh, and won a massive community benefit agreement uh, and limits on pollution from, from the oil refinery. I found it, as you said, in Lewiston, Maine, where which is a quote-unquote dying mill town where the economy and Main Street and school system had been revived by the presence of African Muslim refugees and, and immigrants and talked to white people who had their lives really transformed by being in, in fellowship um, with these new Mainers. And, and for me, I think the big takeaway lesson for the book, for people, you know, just individual readers, is to find ways to be in collaboration and take collective action with your neighbors, um, to do so in ways that bring you, you know, in proximity with and and in cahoots with people who are different from you, and and that that is both powerful in society and in your community, and it also can be personally transformational. Um, and then I also offer, you know, some of the things that policymakers can do and that we need to do as a nation. I, I lift up the idea of a truth, racial healing and transformation effort. Um, and I visit with folks in Dallas who have adopted this framework, um, which allows people to uh, get together a series of a group of stakeholders and write a, an alternative community history that really, you know, tells the truth about the way that racism uh, shaped a community um, from, you know, from indigenous times to the president present, and then set a new vision that says, okay, what would it look like for us to really live in a Dallas, for example, that was free of this belief in a hierarchy of human value? And what are the narratives that would need to change? And what are the laws that would need to change? Um, you know, this kind of thing is often the precursor for reparations. And, you know, I do obviously endorse reparations in the book. I, I think that reparations are the seed capital that we need for the America that we're becoming, a, a multiracial America. Um, and I think that, you know, you have this massive racial wealth divide that is not about Black people in education or Black pe people's income. Um, it's really about where history shows up in your wallet, where the average Black college graduate household can have less wealth than a white high school dropout household. That that makes no sense, you know, in a sort of colorblind meritocracy. But if you know anything about the history of exclusion of Black people from owning property, it makes total sense. And so, you know, I offer a series of both policy recommendations and things that people can do. And, you know, hopefully a sense of empowerment of knowing, you know, 
the answer to why can't we have nice things? Why is our country so dysfunctional in so many ways? And then also the the feeling of of renewed commitment to making better choices in the future for our country and for its people. Right. And of course, knowledge is power. And the sum of us uh, is full of knowledge and uh, by effect also will make you more powerful if you read it. Heather, you're... um, You're you're chair of the Board of Color of Change. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us a little bit about the work you're doing with with that organization. Yeah, absolutely. So Color of Change is the largest online racial justice organization in the United States. We have 7 million people who have, you know, joined and taken action with Color of Change. Um, We exist to uh, make, hold corporations and governments accountable uh, for the treatment of Black people. And it is uh, an organization that makes Black people and their allies who are often, you know, enraged on a daily basis by police brutality, by misrepresentation in the media, by inequity in our economy, in our criminal justice system. Um, It gives us ways to take action and feel more powerful. Um, And it's led by an incredible um, person named Rashad Robinson, who's the president. I, I serve in a volunteer capacity as the chair of the board. Folks can can go to colorofchange.org and see what campaigns we're running today. It's also a platform to allow people to create their own petitions and take action in their community. If something is happening that you want to bring attention to and start to organize through your own social media and get local media for an issue of racial justice, there are ways to do that as well. And then there's also a, a PAC um, which called Voting While Black, um, which helps to... Uh, principally actually elect better prosecutors who are reform-minded, racial justice uh, uh, committed prosecutors across the country. Well, great. Heather McGee, uh, I want to thank you for being with us here on Miranda Warnings, the author of The Some of Us. Uh, Thank you for writing this book uh, and enlightening us. It's been really delightful speaking with you. Thank you, David. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for reading my book. Yes, it's wonderful. Right. I appreciate it. <laughs> so these are all very serious topics. We have a lighthearted feature called Music Book or Movie. Is there anything that you'd like to share uh, that, uh, for our listeners? Yeah. So um, I've really been listening nonstop to this Zimbabwean singer-songwriter um, who plays the Mbira, which is this sort of like thumb... Um, thumb piano kind of um her name is chiwaniso marayar um and you can just sort of start googling on your streaming service or whatever spelled like it sounds right yeah chiwoniso (laughs) c-h-i-w-o-n-i-s-o okay and um she's gone unfortunately she died young but oh such a gorgeous gorgeous musician and it's the kind of music that you can just put on and listen to on repeat all day oh great uh we'll we'll look for it Heather McGee, author of Some of Us, thank you for being with us on Miranda Warnings. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.